0: et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, whether it's dancing or singing or losing weight or whatever it is, story is always a really important piece of that. So, but it's not even just that. So we all love story. Culturally, that's a big piece, but we also want to be a part of a story. I mean, you think about this when you were a kid or maybe last night that you watch a movie and then want to go act it out. You want to be a part of the story you want to uh, grab the sword and rescue the person, or you want to, whatever, you just want to be a part of the story. Choose your own adventure books. You guys remember reading those? I mean, that's a big thing with that, that you actually can be a part of the story. What are you going to do next? Turn to page 53 or turn to page 28. What will you do? That we want to be immersed in a story. And that might not necessarily be the language that you think of, but we all want to be a part of something bigger, which is another way to say that we want to be a part of a story. We want to be a part of something that is a grand narrative that explains life, that adds that explains all the different pieces of life. I mean, if you think about a story, it's what's the beginning? What, what are we here for? What's happening? What's going on? And what's wrong? And what are the problems? And what will fix it? And, and what will fixed look like? I mean, I mean, those are all the different components of story that we live with. You can call that a worldview, you can call it a paradigm, you can call it whatever you want, but it's, it's a story that we all want to live in and be a part of and engage in. And how you define what the story is explains life. I mean, what you think the story that we live in is defines really life for you. It defines what you think is wrong and how you'll fix it and what you should be doing. And I mean, we are, we're characters bound by the story that, that we believe. Um, and the problem is sometimes we, we live the wrong story. So um, maybe a couple months ago, I went to go see a movie it was that Tom Cruise, like, go back in time movie thing, you know, that one. Okay, pretty, pretty good movie. Um, Tom Cruise is on all these weird, wacky movies. But it was uh, IMAX in 3D, and I'm, so the beginning of it, it says, like, before the movie even starts, they're kind of pumping you up, because it's IMAX, and it's 3D, and they have all this, you know, countdown stuff, and these loud noises, and everything, and then it says, um, don't just watch a movie, be in one. Because you're in, I mean, it's IMAX and it's 3D and, and people want that feeling of I'm immersed in the story, but then guess what happened? They start the movie and it's how to train your dragon Two. So they put the wrong movie on and we're watching it for a little while. Like, I don't think this is the right story. I don't think this is the right movie. And especially if I'm supposed to be in that movie, not just watching it. Like, What happens if we think we're in the wrong, if, if we're in the wrong story? If we're living the wrong story, I mean, if, if really what they promise is that we are in the movie, what would have happened? I mean, I would have thought, here, I'm okay, I know there's aliens and we're supposed to kill the aliens and I'd be killing the dragons and those are actually the good guys in that story. See, if we live the wrong story, life actually doesn't make sense. If we, live the, if we are operating our lives in a certain story, but that's not really the story, it messes stuff up. And God wants us to be a part of his story. He wants us to be a part of connecting our life to what his story is. To be immersed in his story and to build our lives around his story. And here's what the Bible calls that. The Bible calls that the gospel. The Bible calls that the gospel, which means good news. And here's, here's what the Bible says. Now I would, this is Paul talking in the letter to the Corinthian church. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's, he's going to describe the gospel, okay? For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, but listen to this, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So what he's saying is this isn't just an event that took place randomly, although the content of the event he tells us, and if you're a Christian, you've heard this many times, Christ died for your sins, but he says this is in accordance with the scriptures. So he's saying this is part of a story. This is something that happened as a part of the, the, when he's saying the scriptures, he means the, the Old Testament of all of these different things that were pointing towards this event taking place. So he says this is part of a story. So and that's what we're talking about tonight, that the gospel, is a st- there's a story connected with it. And if we don't understand that, what happens is it's kind of like just jumping into the very end of a movie. So some of the great movies that I, that I think are the great movies, maybe you don't, and you would need to repent of that, but if you watch Braveheart, and the end is freedom! Now, if you just came and watched that, you might think it was kind of cool, but you wouldn't necessarily understand, okay, what, what happened? Or Lord of the Rings, sorry if you haven't seen it, there's a statute of limitations on these things, but they dropped the ring in the fire. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just on the one before. <laughs> They drop the ring in the fire, and everybody cheers, and everything's great, and it's wonderful. But, I mean, if you hadn't seen the first 20 hours of the movie, then you wouldn't know. I've got the extended edition. Then you wouldn't know. We watched it on our honeymoon also. But you wouldn't. I'm not joking. And you wouldn't know. (laughs) You wouldn't know. Why was that so powerful? Why was that so dramatic? Why was that... So sometimes I think that's what happens with the gospel, is that we hear this content, but Paul's saying, this is according to the scriptures. This is according to a story that's happened, a true story. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What is God's story? What's the story? Because story helps us make meaning of our lives. And if we get the story wrong, we're living a part of a false story. So what is the story? Well, this is what we will look at. And as a good story has... I'm going to show you um, pictures that will go along with this story that are classic works of art to illustrate each of these pictures because I just thought that would be cool since we're talking about story and pictures go well with story. So the first part of the story is this, creation. And I'm going to read to you from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and I'm not going to read the whole chapters um, but I'm going to just read you selections from those two chapters. And here's the beginning of the story. Where did we come from? Why are we here in the first place? Why? What's going I mean, what's the beginning of the story that we live in? Why are we here? What's going on? What does God want for us? Why did he make us? Well, here's what Genesis 1 and 2 say. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's the picture that goes with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God blessed them. This is the abridged version, remember. These are all the words of scripture, but I'm moving through it. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Chapter two, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed. So here's what we see in the beginning of creation. God creates out of love. See, many of the different creation stories in different religions or um, different thoughts is that there's some sort of chaos, or there's some sort of war, or there's some sort of loneliness or neediness that God has, and so then He creates. But what we see here in Genesis one and two is that God is in perfect community. The Bible calls this the Trinity, and this is a big concept that God is three in one. And I know you know you might all of a sudden your mind just exploded, and that's fine. But that God is three persons, but with one essence. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that's why in the beginning what you hear is, let us make man in our image. And so what happens is this. God, the Bible tells us, is love. And so in perfect community, God, loving, in this loving community that's always eternally existed, says, let's make man out of our image. It's kind of like you could think about two parents that out of the overflow of their love and intimacy, a child is created. That's what the Bible presents to us with creation here, that out of the overflow of love and intimacy that God has in community, he creates. It doesn't say, hey, we need to, um, we're kind of lonely up here, let's make some people, or we need some servants, or different types of things that other religions teach that God is needy, that he's lonely, or there's some sort of cosmic war taking place. But what happens is out of the overflow of God's love, he creates. And the Bible shows God as a creator, as a craftsman. Some of you that like to build and make or do art, this this rings true in your heart because you're made in God's image that you like to create or to build or to make because you are made in the image of a creator. And I want you just to think, because I know if you're a Christian or if you've been in church, you've heard these things many times, but I want you to think just about this with fresh eyes for a moment, that God creates. And think about the beauty, the wonder, the amazement of creation. Think about the fact that there are flowers, and maybe that doesn't seem that exciting to you, but think about a flower. It's beautiful. People look at it and it's beauty. But it's not just beautiful, it smells good. I mean, think about why. I mean, God could have just made everything very mechanical and very functional, but he, he creates with beauty and, and he creates food that tastes good. And he gives us as humans taste buds. I mean, think about if we just lived in this world naturally, mechanicalistically, and just kind of went through life, we need sustenance. We don't have to have taste buds. We could just be cars that have gasoline go into us and move right along. But God designed us with taste buds to experience, I mean, biting into a peach and having flavor just burst in your mouth. I mean, God is crafting this world in love. Think about the fact that However, this is, I mean, the the laws of nature and sound waves combine so that metal being touched and things being stretched and then punched create sound that we find emotionally moving, either to charge us up for a workout or to help us when we're sad or, I mean, that All of these sound waves and things combine in such a way that hit us emotionally. I mean, just all of this stuff, if you think of it, it's very man, the world was created with love, was created with creativity, was created with expression, just all. And then God makes humans. And I've never met a parent that had a first child, at least, that didn't look at the baby and say, This is a miracle of life, that life exists. And then humans that have song and emotions and intellect and connection. and I mean, this is what God made. It's beautiful. And God says over and over and over again, we didn't read all the different instances. I just read you the summary one, but over and over and over again, he says, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. I mean, if you've ever made something Sometimes you make something and you're a little bit of ashamed of it because it's like, uh, oh, that looks like a preschooler made it. Other times you make something and you go, wow, this is... And then you Instagram it and put a picture of, you know, maybe you make something, on you make some food and you go, look at this. That's kind of what God's doing. If God had Instagram, when he made this, he said, look, it's good. It's very good. Look at this. And God's standards are much higher than ours. And he can show this is good. Think about... Just think about your best day. Think about the best day you've ever had, or maybe it's a combination of days, if you could pull that all together. Your best day in nature, or maybe you're in the mountains or you're, you're on a hike or biking, or maybe you're less athletic than that and you're walking around the lake, or maybe it's just something that you just feel wow, man, this just feels good. Your best day relationally with somebody else that everything was clicking, there was no problems, you were getting along, everything was great, you were laughing, you were having fun, you were feasting. Think about your best day with God. You felt close with God, you felt like He was near to you, you felt joy, you felt connection, you felt you just rested and knew He loves me, He cares for me. Think about your best day just with yourself, that you you weren't kind of filled with shame or guilt or just self-pity or sinning or you just it was just a good day. I mean think about all of that. The best you can imagine. That's what this was that God said, it's good. It's good. This is the world that God made and it says that he made us for relationship with him. He made us to relate to him with him as king, living under his rule and then with other people. That said we're made for relationships. God makes Adam and he says it's not good for Adam to be alone. And that's a statement about marriage, but it's also a statement broader than that just about human community that's not good for us to be alone. And so God gives community. He makes us for relationships. And everything works and it's beautiful. And what it says is that God wants life for them and for us. He puts the tree of life, that they would enjoy life under his rule with him as king in this kingdom, in this paradise with one another. It's beautiful, right? I mean, it's it's an amazing thing that God makes. We live in creation with him as king following his purposes and the commission that he's given to us. C.S. Lewis says, if we look around this world and we have a desire and a longing in our heart for nothing that this world can satisfy, that must mean we're built for another world. If we've got all these longings and these desires in our hearts that never seem to be totally satisfied here... That shows, it points to the fact that we're made for another world. It's this world, the original world, the created world. Interestingly, you know the word recreation. I mean, that means recreate. That when we try to experience recreation, we're trying to tap into this recreated experience of this, of everything being good, where we are made in God's image to reflect Him, to show Him, to show how good He is, That's what we were made for. This is the first part of the story. This is what God intended. This is what God made. But, I mean, if you have lived in this world, you know that something went wrong. The Bible calls this the fall. That something went wrong, right? I mean, you look around the world and the picture that I just described is not what exists. Something is broken. Something doesn't, something's not working right. Something went wrong. And how you describe what went wrong is how you describe what the answer is. If you look at the world, and everybody looks at the world and knows something's wrong with the world. How you describe what the problem is, is how you describe what the solution therefore is. And again, if we're living as a part of another story, we don't understand what's actually wrong. And the Bible gives us a different picture than what we commonly hear of what's wrong. I mean, mainly what people think right now, here's what's wrong with the world. I'm just not happy. And so the solution then is I need to get happy. Or here's what's wrong with the world is, man, I just, it's low self-esteem and it's low self-image and it's low self-love and low self-confidence. And so the answer is we need more of that. How you look at what's wrong points you towards what the answer is. And the Bible presents a picture of of something gone, terribly wrong, where this beautiful kingdom that God has set up and established is now broken. It's now marked by death. God puts the tree of life in the middle of the garden and creates and gives life and breathes life. And instead, now there's death. And so this is what the Bible says has happened. And I'll read to you, children, cover your eyes, but I will read to you... Um. I will read to you Genesis 3 in full. And here is what happens. Here's what went wrong. Now the serpent, that's the devil, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. It's calling God a liar. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil." Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Horrible. 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 It's the disruption of everything that God made. What you see is that God said, if you disobey me, if you eat of this tree, instead of having life, you will have death. And what we see play out in Genesis 3 is death in all of the four areas that previously there was life. So there's death now that enters into relationship with God. Where man and woman were designed to experience God as king, loving him, trusting him, enjoying him. Now, what happens is they run and hide from him. There's a fear in between them, there's a hostility with them and God. Adam even blames God and says, It's the woman that you gave me, it's it's your woman that you put here. They hide from him, they doubt his character, they doubt his goodness, they believe the lies of the snake that says, you won't die, you won't experience death, be wise, God's holding out on you. Ever since that day, that is what we experience. We experience a death, a hostility in our relationship with God that looks like either an outright rejection of God, just doing whatever you want. It can look like ignoring God, which just says, yeah, maybe, maybe he's there, but I'm just going to kind of live my life. Sometimes people do this by actually living very good lives. They live very good lives and they do very good things. And and people go, well, God would never send me to hell because I'm living such a good life. But God has not just asked you to live a good life. He's asked you to be in relationship with him. If you had parents and you said, you know, I'm just going to live a very good life, but I'm completely rejecting my parents, completely ignoring my parents. They wouldn't say, oh, that warms my heart at least you're living a good life. No, they would say, you've rejected me, you've ignored me. Or sometimes we do this by dismissing God, which I think often happens by having an intellectual assent that there is a God, but he's never a central part of our life. We would say, yes, of course there's a God, but he's not important to our life in any way. He's just kind of dismissed. And this is what happens with Adam and Eve, that death enters into their relationship with God. Instead of him being the one they love and enjoy, he's now this person they're in hostility with. We experience that. You experience that. I experience that. It's part of death. And, and likewise, we experience death just in, internally. That what happens is that God made them to be naked and unashamed. He made them to enjoy him, to enjoy one another. And what happens is, is the security of the relationship with God leaves all of a sudden there's fear and there's shame and there's, I'm hiding and I'm, I feel like I'm naked and well, I am naked and I mean, just all of this, I'm, I need to hide. And so ever since that moment, what has happened is that because our security, our, our being under God has been abandoned, we seek that in other things. So this is where in our life, whether it's relationships or work or our possessions or family, or whatever it might be, we seek those things to add the value to our life, to add the significance to our life, to add the worth to our life, to add the sense of clothedness to our life, that we seek other things to replace what God was supposed to provide, that we look to other things to give what only God can give. And likewise, it also ends up affecting our social relationships, What you see with Adam and Eve is that originally they're created, and Adam sings this song, Bone of my Bones, Flesh of my Flesh, and they're one, and they're unashamed with one another, and they're naked with one another, and they're totally accepting of one another, and it's beautiful. It's unity. And now, what happens in the world today? That you have racism, that you have classism, that you have prejudice that you have sexism, that you have people battling against one another. Instead of unity, now division is created. Instead of people experiencing a oneness because there's a common God that they're all under. Think about, you know, I, I remember last year with the playoffs and United in Orange, which says this bring, because of the Broncos, everybody is brought together. Well, that's what it was supposed to be. That what, not the Broncos, well, maybe that too. But what brings everybody together what brings everybody together is the one God, the one king. And so we unite around him. But when that God has been removed from our lives, we set ourselves up as king. I am king. And this person sets themselves up as king. I am king. And so the kingdom's battle and the race's battle and the sex's battle and the country's battle. And it creates division instead of unity. That God created human relationships to experience a oneness and a unity. And everybody longs for that now but instead it's broken and what happens is the hiding and the shame so they hide and they cover themselves up and we experience this all the time whenever we hide from one another not in hide and seek but you know people talk about wearing a mask and not letting people really see who you are the experience you know we all have this dual experience where we want we really want people to know us and yet at the same time that's a scary thing to be known because we're now experiencing shame instead of this freedom. We're now trying to cover ourselves up and hide, which leads sometimes to just a, a braggadocious pride, trying to hide behind our, our, our arrogance. And sometimes it leads to a loneliness because we retreat from really letting people know us and see us. See, all of this creates death socially and in the world. God says the ground is cursed And if you look at the world, you see it's not even just the sin from other people, the brokenness, but there's death, there's natural disasters, there's disease, there's brokenness just in the created order of things. Death has entered into every single sphere of life, whether it's between us and God, internally in our own hearts, relationships with others, and the world itself. It all has death now, which is what God said would happen. That if we live life with him, not as king, That the world is now broken, that it's fallen, that there's death. That our life in this world now is composed of sin and suffering. That we all sin against one another and others sin against us. We all experience suffering, whether physically or emotionally or mentally. And we cause suffering for others. So this is the world we now live in where everything is marked by death. Everything, though creation still has some of its goodness that we can see, it's been totally, it's been tainted, every part of it, by death. And we all long for something better. That's why every election year, that's why causes, that's why we all know this isn't right and we want someone to fix it. Most great stories have some sort of narrative that follows this, that something is good, then something goes horribly wrong, and people want to see something change it. And That's what we long for. We long for two things. We long for change and justice. We long for things to be different, but we also long for the, the wrongs to be righted, for the evils that people have done, for there to be justice. I mean, this is why even if you're not a Christian and even people that are not Christians, they still experience a, a moral outrage of the things that happen in the world, whether that be racism or sex trafficking or slavery. Or, but there's no higher law that they're appealing to. It just doesn't feel right. Something just feels wrong about it with or without religious conviction because we know this is something is wrong. This is not how it should be. And so we long for change and we long for justice. But here's what's interesting. We usually don't long for justice for ourselves. We usually kind of view that as something out there that justice should be given to those people and those circumstances in those groups, but not for us. We want justice. There's things wrong, but not with us. But the Bible says something different. The Bible says that we are all Guilty, this is how Paul describes it in Romans, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, not just the worst kinds that you see on TV, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. It says, ever since God created the world, people can know things about him by seeing the world that we live in and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What this says is this, that God makes the world and people should be able to know not everything about him, but a lot about him by seeing the world, and yet we suppress the truth. We say, yes, I know that there's a God, but we don't honor him as God. We don't live our life with him as God. We don't Thank him as God. We say, yes, there's a God. And this is very interesting that Paul says this a long, long time ago because that's still what happens today is most people say, yes, there's a God. But they don't live their life with God at the center. Instead, what happens is this. They claim to be wise, but they exchange the glory of God for images. This is idols. They set up different idols for different things. And we don't do this today with statues, but we do this today making idols of other things our image, our body, our work, our success, our family, our spouses, whatever it might be, that we set up other things. The glory should be God's. We should honor God and thank God and build our life around God. But instead what happens is we set up other things as God. It's all part of death. And so God has wrath against these things, judgment against these things. So we want justice. We cry out for justice, but usually not for ourselves. For those people but God hates all of this he hates it because it's a rejection of what he's made it's a rejection of the life that he intends it's a rejection of his, everything good that he is desiring for us it damages his creation it damages his world it damages all of this so God has wrath against us and the world so what hope do we have? What solution do we have? Is there anything that will fix it? Is there anything that can make things right? The first two chapters show God creating the world, and it's beautiful. The next chapter shows everything broken. And then the effects of that continue to spill out onto the pages of the Bible and into our lives. And if you look at those four different categories of Death in our relationship with God, death internally, death with others, and death in the world. I know that all of us have been affected by all of those things to varying degrees at different times. So what hope do we have today, but what hope is there in the story? We long for a Savior. And the very first thing that God promised is what I read in Genesis as God is giving them a curse, he also says, but what's going to happen, snake, devil, is that there's going to be enmity between you and the woman. That there is going to be someone that comes from the seed of a woman that will one day be bruised in his heel, but he will ultimately crush the head of the snake. So there's this initial promise that is made. There's this initial hope that is given. And then we come to a man named Abraham and what God says to Abraham, he comes to Abraham and he tells him in Genesis 17, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and Kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, possession. And I will be their God. So this promise that he gives to Eve about the offspring and and blessing coming through that begins to get explained more and more and more and more elements added to it throughout the Bible. And the first that we get a clearer picture is with Abraham that God tells him, I'm going to, from you, there's going to be a kingdom that comes. From you, there's going to be an offspring that comes. I'm going to make a covenant with you that you will be my people and I will be your God. And there will be blessing and kingdom and life that will come through you. This is kind of the first snapshot of the promise getting extended. Maybe maybe there's some hope. Maybe there's some redemption that will happen. God enters into the scene and says, it's not all curse. It's not all broken. There's going to be something I'm going to do. A covenant I will make. A kingdom that will come. And then, after that, this keeps getting fleshed out more and more. You know Moses. You guys have seen Moses. He's holding some commandments there. What else do you hold like that? And what happens with Moses is that God starts to give the law for these people. Of what does this people that will come, this people that he says he will make a covenant with, how how will they be governed? What will it be like? See, God is making a people. He's building, he's saying there's still going to be hope. Where I am king, life with me, under my rule, under my reign, with you as my people in relationship with me. And this is all the stuff you read in the Bible with all the different laws and all the different sacrifices set up because sin still has to be paid for. And so God is creating this people. But then they ask for a king. God didn't give them a king. He gave them prophets and he gave them people to rule, but not a king, but the people ask for a king. And God says, I will give you a king, but one day I'll even give you a better king. I'll give you a better king where I am king. And all these different, this is showing a picture of a man named Jesse, who is the father of David. And then all the different kings of Israel that came from him in the family tree. All of these different kings where people are sort of experiencing God's kingdom, but time and time and time again, they go back to the ways of death they reject god they do their own thing they dismiss god they set up false gods they they never get it right all of the things that god sets up are just a shadow he's always promising something out there that i will bring there will be a savior a messiah and then throughout the Bible, the prophets begin to speak. And they promise that one day there will be a Savior. This is a representation of the prophet Isaiah. And here's, this is throughout the Bible that the prophets call the people to live in God's way of life instead of death. And here's something that Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 42. He says, this is Isaiah's book recording God's word. So here's what God says. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So this person will come that will finally bring justice. And at this time, they're in slavery. Excuse me. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. In a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's to say there's going to be a gentleness about this person even though he will bring justice. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So there's all these promises over and over and over and over again, more and more fleshed out that there will be this king, there will be this savior. Things will get set right. It's not hopeless. There will be one that comes that sets things back where God is king and we are in his kingdom and we are his people experiencing life. He will bring that. And then in the Old Testament, there's all these prophets And then you get to the last book. And then there's 400 years of silence and slavery. That we get to the time of Jesus. And during that time, God's people, Israel, the Jews, are in captivity once again. They're enslaved once again. Experiencing death once again. But then Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus shows up. And what Jesus says is this. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus shows up. He shows up and he says, I'm the king. The time is fulfilled. Everything you've been waiting for, the kingdom is now here. Everything that centuries, thousands of years that we've been longing for, I'm here. And many people do not believe him. Many people doubt him. Many people reject him partially because they are envisioning this Messiah that would come and wipe everybody out. They're envisioning this king that would come and destroy, that would bring justice because just like you and I, they miss the bigger problem. The biggest problem was not the Romans that had them enslaved. The biggest problem that he would come to defeat is our sin, our hearts. It's the spiritual problems that we carry inside. And so they expect him to be riding on a horse, slaughtering everybody. But instead he comes saying, repent, repent. And he comes and he starts to do things that break life into every area. That where there's death Instead, Jesus begins to bring healing. So he reverses the death that we see expressed in disease and decay. The death even in nature where there's storms and Jesus can calm them. The death where people experience shame and hurt and, and Jesus says, I forgive you, life, life, life. He brings people together that normally wouldn't be together. He brings life Jesus says himself, I come to bring life and life abundantly. So Jesus shows up on the scene and what starts to happen is there's these signs that he is the king, that the kingdom is coming finally, God's rule, God's reign, where we can be God's people. It's happening. It's happening. And Jesus preaches and he teaches and he tells people to repent. He says, repent. And believe in the gospel, which is to say this, repent of being your own king. Repent of setting your own kingdom up. Repent of aligning yourselves with other kingdoms, of having your allegiance and your loyalty to the kingdoms of the world. He says the kingdom of God is here. So repent. Repent. See, the answer when Jesus shows up, the answer when Jesus shows up is not, hey, just do better. I'm here as a coach. You guys need to really get your act together. Jesus doesn't show up and say, hey, I'm here, and and I'm going to make you all happy. He doesn't show up and say, I'm here, and I'm just going to help you with your self-image problems. I'm going to help you with your self-doubt and your self-love. I'm going to help you with that. No, he says, repent. Repent. Change from you being the king to me being the king. Change from you aligning yourself with all the false kingdoms of this world and join life with me as your king in relationship with me and be my people. And that's the call that he gives. He calls people to repentance. And that's today what it means that if, if you don't know God, if you don't know Jesus, the call is not just to do better and to try harder or that just to hear even God loves you and God thinks you're awesome. It's repent and see God as king. Repent and join God's kingdom through Jesus. So this is the call that Jesus gives. And then it reaches the climax of all of the story. How is Jesus going to deal with the curse? Because remember, God has cursed man and woman and there is death. How is Jesus going to deal with death? It's great to tell people to repent, but we are cursed We have sin inside of us. We have death inside of us in all the different areas I've mentioned. How is Jesus going to deal with that death? And the way that he deals with that death is through himself dying. Jesus is the only innocent one. He's God come into creation. He is the creator that becomes now into creation as a man, God and man. And he enters in living a perfect life that we should all live. And he goes to the cross to pay the penalty of death that God said everybody gets that has disobeyed him. Just like he said back in the garden. The penalty of death that we all experience internally, with God, relationally. Jesus doesn't deserve that. He lived a perfect life. But he goes as a substitute. He says, yes, there is a penalty of death for all humans. And I will take that on myself instead. I will be the one that defeats death by absorbing it. The Bible calls it later that he swallows death. That he absorbs death into himself. And he's able to do that because he's the only one that doesn't deserve the curse. So he is an innocent victim that willingly goes to the cross to take the death that we should have, he takes it upon himself. But that's not the end of the story. Because since he is innocent, since he is God, since death, see, here's the thing. Jesus shows up with life and everything he touches, his power brings life. So, in the Bible, you're not supposed to touch anything unclean This is the rules that God gave his people in the Old Testament. But Jesus goes and he touches lepers that are unclean. But what happens is instead of Jesus becoming unclean, his life touches that death and the lepers healed. The same happens here. That Jesus touches death. That he experiences death. But instead of death ultimately defeating him, he defeats death. His life defeats death. And this is the resurrection. This is an angel opening the tomb. That's Jesus. (laughs) You can get a closer look later, but he's there. It's like Waldo. And he defeats death. He defeats death. And what happens now is the reason the resurrection is important is because we can have life instead of death by being united to him. That's what faith is, that we say, yes, Jesus is my king and he's my representative and he's my substitute. So since he defeated death, I've defeated death. Since he now has the power of life, I have the power of life in all those areas because I'm by faith connected in relationship with him. So Jesus defeats death and resurrects from the grave. And so now what's made available to us is that we have life by being united to him as king. Here's how the Bible describes this. In Colossians Paul says. He has delivered us. From the domain of darkness. And transferred us. To the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. See it's a transferring of kingdoms. You were a part of a false kingdom. A kingdom of darkness. But by what Jesus has done. By the forgiveness of your sins. He brings you into another kingdom. You can now live life with God as king in his presence with his people. And sometimes people wonder, well, how, how, I mean, why would God do that for me? I don't deserve that. How could God love me that much? I don't even love myself that much. I I don't, I don't understand why God would do that. I don't get it. Well, here's what the Bible says. In second Timothy, Paul says this, and this is all throughout the Bible, but here's one verse. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord this is Paul talking, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And here's what he did. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So it's something that has been promised for a long time and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So it's not because we're so awesome that Jesus dies for us. It's not because of all the great things we've done that he dies for us. People that wonder, how could God do this for me? The answer is only because of Jesus, only because of grace, only because of mercy. It's not because of anything in us that he did it. It's only because of him. For his own purposes, for his grace, and for his mercy. That he says, I will abolish death and give you life through the gospel. It's an amazing thing that none of us deserve. That's why Christianity is not all the good people are in and all the bad people are out. Rather, it's all the humble people are in and all the proud people are out. All of those that say, I need this savior. I need this king. They become part of God's kingdom. They enter into an, a relationship of life where Jesus has abolished the death and that begins to work itself out from the inside out. As you become a Christian, death in all of those areas over time starts to have a life in all of those areas. Jesus decisively defeats death on the cross. And yet, when we enter into his kingdom, we still have aspects of our life where we dismiss God or dismiss others or have death in our relationships. We still have disease and physical sickness here. But over time, Jesus begins to eradicate all of that in our life. But if you look at the world that we live in now, that's not the world we live in, right? And if God is king and Jesus is king and everything is great, why why do we still experience death in so many different areas? See, the Bible teaches that Jesus through his death and resurrection is king of the world now. Ruling and reigning in the church are his people. But we still experience pain. We still experience hurt. We still experience a broken world because the kingdom has come, but it's not fully here. Jesus has announced it. He's won the victory, but it hasn't fully taken over into our lives personally or into the whole scope of the world. This is why the Bible teaches that one day Jesus will return and finish completely what he started. He waits because there's still so many people that he wants to give a chance to repent, to see him as king, to be a part of his kingdom. And so he is patient and he waits Jesus is king ruling and reigning, but one day he will come to restore everything back to how he originally intended it to be, one day in full. And here is uh, from Revelation, the final book of the Bible, chapter 21 and selections from 22. Here is what will happen in the end. This is John, one of Jesus' Closest friends and apostle that's given this vision from Jesus of what will happen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. This is what God had promised. And God himself will be with them as their God. And listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. That was the curse given. And one day death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, this is Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's grace. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's both an announcement of judgment, but it's also giving us hope that, guess what, all of the sin that we experience won't be present in this world. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, this is the church, the wife of the Lamb, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. The temple is where God is present. And so he's saying we don't need a temple because God is present. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, back from Genesis, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. That's finally the restoration back to what God intended, where there is life, where he is king, where he is, where we are his people, where there's a city, where there's joy, where there's festivity, where there's eating, where there's no more pain. There's no more disease, there's no more hurt, there's no more sickness, there's no more gossiping and slandering, there's no more relational tension, there's no more self-image issues, there's no more guilt, there's no more hiding, there's no more wondering if God loves us, there's no more any of that. It's every tear wiped away, all sorrow removed, God in the middle dwelling with his people, so glorious that there's no need of sun. This is what is coming. And this is, and I'm telling you, put your hope in that kingdom, not in this one. So many people are trying to build this here, now. Trying to recreate the garden instead of longing and waiting and living as if this is the kingdom that we belong to. And if you're a Christian, this is the kingdom that you belong to. You do not belong to the kingdom of this world. So live with Jesus As your king, have your treasure be in this kingdom, not in this kingdom. And so the message for us today is the same as what Jesus said. It's repent and know that Jesus is the king. Know that Jesus is the source of life. Is this the story that you're living? God is king, dwelling with him, us as his people. Is this the story that you're living?